what we're seeing right now is, you know, there are reservation systems that are 50 years old, right? That are yeah. running on dot matrix type printers, green screens. And so you have folks that are coming into the industry where they're digital natives working on green screens. Welcome to the second season of The Modern Hotelier, the fastest growing hospitality podcast. Both hosts were named top 100 most powerful people in hospitality and voted fourth most popular podcast by the International Hospitality Institute. Each episode will get to know an industry expert and we'll discuss the latest trends in hospitality to help you, the modern hotelier. Welcome to the modern hotelier. I'm your host, David Malilli. I'm your co-host, Steve Karen. This episode is sponsored by the Independent Lodging Congress. This ILC event is unlike any other. Indie Congress is our most popular event. It is a two and a half day conference covering all things hospitality. Through meaningful and relevant panels, deep dive breakouts, and of course, great food and beverage, you'll connect with visionaries and thought leaders inside and outside the independent lodging sector. See you in San Fran. Steve, who do we have on the program today? Yeah, David, today we have on Janelle Johnson. Janelle is a principal lead client partner of the travel, transportation, and hospitality sector at PwC. Janelle has nearly 25 years of experience at leading investment banking and consulting firms. Her passion is to help clients with strategic planning around their growth and investment agendas. Welcome to the show, Janelle. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You're welcome. So we're going to go through a couple sections. We're going to get to ask you some lightning round questions, get to know about your background. We're then going to dive into your career, and then we're going to go into industry topics. Sound good? Sounds perfect. Okay. So what was the worst job you ever had? Worst job I ever had? Babysitting when I was a teenager. <laughs> I wasn't very good at it, frankly. <laughs> yeah, then we, then yeah. we become parents. Um, well, are you a morning or a night person? I am a morning person. I am up at 5 a.m. every morning. That's when it's quiet in my house and I can actually get some productive things done. Great. So if you had to delete all of the apps on your phone except for three, what three apps would you leave on your phone? I would leave messages because that's my primary way of communicating is text messaging. I would leave my calendar because otherwise I would not know where I'm supposed to be when. And I'd probably keep Instagram. I hate saying that, but I probably <laughs> would keep Instagram because I, I'm one of those people that get stuck scrolling sometimes. So yeah, that's me. Got it. What's the most used emoji for you? It's the blowing kisses emoji. Hmm. What's your favorite song? I have a 14-year-old daughter. And so Taylor Swift happens to be on repeat in my house. So <laughs> I'm going to say a Taylor Swift song of some sort. Okay, got it. Do you have a favorite restaurant? I'm a big sushi person, so I love, there's a sushi restaurant in D.C. in DuPont Circle, where I used to live. It's called Sushi Nora. It's amazing. So if you had your own talk show, who would your first guest be? My first guest, I'm assuming it doesn't have to be someone who's with us today or, or living. Your choice, um, yeah. if, if not living, it would be my mom. So my mom Got passed it. away 15 years ago and would be great to see her again. Understood. All right. So I'm, I got, I got a feeling here. So if you, if you had a time machine and you could go into the past or the future, which way would you go and what year would it be? I would go into the past 
and I would go back to probably April 2008. So you're, you're feeling spot on is, is where I would go back to. Fair enough. Well, that was great. Great. Now we're going to get a, a, get to know you a little bit better, kind of what makes you tick. So you live in DC now, but where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. Nice. And most people are like, why would you ever leave Miami? But I left Miami. I left to go to university in Washington, D.C. and ended up staying in D.C. I met my now husband in college. So we were college sweethearts. He snagged me while I was still a teenager. Um, and we've been together now for 24 years. And then we've kind of followed each other around, whether it was D.C., we lived in California, we lived in Baltimore, we lived in London for five and a half years, we were in New York, and we've been back in D.C. now for about six years. So I always say I've been around the world and back again, but my roots are in Miami. I love that. How did, how did growing up in Miami shape to who you are today? And also, I'm going to ask, since you traveled around the world so much, how did those experiences inco- incorporate who you are today as well? So Miami is like the world's biggest melting pot, right? If you think about the culture in Miami, I think growing up in Miami gave me such a huge perspective on the world and how to navigate even travel, tourism, hospitality. I think it actually started kind of at home and and where I grew up. Those experiences around the world, I used to be a big planner. I was very much like rigid, organized, and moving to London was never in my master plan. I went as the trailing spouse, they called me. To my husband, and we went with a one-year-old at the time. And I always say I went with a baby in a backpack, and it was really hard. But it taught me so much about myself from a resilience standpoint. And my daughter has been to eighteen countries before she was six years old. So we were true Rolling Stones, traveling the world with, you know, a, a baby and then an infant after that. And my kids have been all over the world, and we continue that today. Impressive. That's great. So you went to George Washington University. Uh, then you got your master's at the University of Maryland. You've specialized in finance and entrepreneurship. What kind of drove you or, or led you to those type of roles in those those situations? Sure. So I um, I did my undergrad in marketing, actually. And at the time that I graduated, jobs were not plentiful. It was a market downturn. So you kind of took what you could get. So I took a job in finance and I was like, oh, I'm good at this finance thing. And I ended up going back to grad school to to get my MBA in finance. And I threw in entrepreneurship because my mom was an entrepreneur. My mom worked in the service industry. She immigrated from Jamaica as a young adult, and she ended up getting certified as to be a hairdresser. So she was a cosmetologist and she always worked in the service industry. She had her own businesses. And I always learned about entrepreneurship from her. And so I thought it added to my personal repertoire from an educational standpoint. Very cool. And in 2021, you founded a private membership network focused on connecting and supporting women executive leaders called Chief. Can you tell us how you got that idea and kind of what it's like been since you've started? So Chief actually started in New York, and what we did in D.C. was open up a chapter in D.C. And what Chief is is really about connecting women at sort of that VP plus level, and because it's often very lonely at those levels, especially as one of few women. So the premise of Chief is really to create that connective tissue amongst other women who are ambitious, driven, want to continue to grow in their careers and to extend that network across the country. So the DC chapter has been been amazing for me. I've met women across different sectors and, and we are able to provide each other with perspectives that 
you know, there are topics I don't necessarily want to talk to my colleagues about, but I can talk to this group of women, you know, in a safe space without any filters. Sure. That's awesome. Very cool. So that's great to get to know you a little bit. Now we're going to move on to your career. So you had a different career path, as you kind of said earlier than most of your other colleagues. You began at a financial service family-owned business and ended up at Deloitte after that. Can you tell us how you ended up at Deloitte? I am going back to my Rolling Stone reference, yeah. honestly. <laughs> And, and I mentioned, you know, my mom was a cosmetologist and you know, grew up in a single parent household, first generation American. And, and so I didn't know what the art of the possible was. And I didn't know professional services, frankly, from anyone else. I'm, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college. So I worked in financial services. I, I've always worked in the service industry. I would say that's sort of the common theme of the path that I've taken. And it's always been somewhat opportunistic of this sounds really interesting. I think I can grow here and let's give it a, let's give it a roll. So always really thinking about how can I develop? How can I grow? How can I mature? How can I have an impact? And that's really been my guiding light and my guiding principle, my North star, as I've made moves throughout my career. Did I ever think I was going to be at Deloitte for nine and a half years? I had no idea. And I think part of what has kept me in professional services is that ability to be agile. No two days are the same. Every day is an adventure. And then there's a huge element of being able to choose your own adventure. And that's what's really kept me in sort of professional services. And what moving from Deloitte to PwC was mostly moving back to the States, to be frank. Sure. And did you work in Deloitte in the States or is that overseas? I did. I was at Deloitte in DC for four and a half years. And then I was in London for five and a half years. Was that the office in Arlington, Virginia? Overlooking? Was that that office or another one? It was on uh, 12th and F Street, actually okay. not too far from where I'm sitting right now at the PwC office in downtown DC. Got it. Got it. I, were, I shared an office with Deloitte on, in Arlington overlooking Georgetown. So that's what I was asking. But <laughs> What did you learn while working at Deloitte that helped you for your current role at PwC? I would say I learned navigating relationships. I started at Deloitte as a senior associate. I moved up from senior associate to assistant director or senior manager level. And I had a lot of life personal challenges that occurred during that process. I, I grew a lot as a, as a person, as a professional, as just a human, honestly. And I think that moving around, right? I spent a year in California did the London stint, learned about different cultures. It really did prepare me for being at PwC and being able to hit the ground running when I joined PwC and understanding how to navigate different situations, frankly. I, I, I think the Deloitte experience prepared me to navigate complex situations in an empathetic manner. So now you're the director to principal at PwC so tell us about that role and tell us your areas of focus and, and what you do in that role. So I joined PwC as a, as a director and most people, and I know Steve, you mentioned having some, some experience with folks at PwC and in the professional services space. Most people who make partner at these firms start their career at these firms. So it's very atypical for someone to come in from the outside and successfully make partner. That's not typically been the path. It's you come in as, you know, first year out of college and you stay hopefully and work your way up the, the pyramid to partner. So coming in as a director was very difficult. I, I, I will 
acknowledge that it wasn't easy because people had relationships that were long standing in the firm. And I was in the mode of having to build that level and depth of relationships for people who'd been around for 13 plus years and do it quickly. So I came in, even when I met with the folks who ultimately hired me, I said, I'm coming here to make partner. Like, that's my goal. That's what we're doing. And if at any point it doesn't make sense and I'm not the right person, let me know. I'll figure something else out to do. So really came in transparently as to what my goals and motivation were and where I wanted to ultimately land and the types of responsibility that I wanted to have. And I think that level of transparency was what really set, set me apart as someone who okay, this woman knows what she wants and she's willing to do what it takes to get there. So that's sort of that transition from director to partner. It did require me to move. So I moved from New York back to DC, which wasn't that much of a hardship, frankly, from a personal standpoint. I mean, you know, a bunch of friends here went to school here. It was actually a good move for me personally, but professionally it was tough. I had to once again, reestablish myself in a new corporate professional environment build relationships, get people to trust me, to want to work with me, and to you know know that I had the, the right skill set to be successful and alongside them and, and team with them. So that agility piece also came into play again, you know, going from director to partner. That's great. And actually, we'll ask you probably about some advice later on in the podcast, but that going in and saying what you want, I think is something that a lot of people forget to do, and then they end up disappointed five, six, or whatever, if they make it that long down the road, because they were, they had these self expectations that they didn't share. So that's, that's great advice. So you're also involved in PWC's charitable foundation. Give us some more insight to that. How are you involved in it? What is it about? I love being a part of PWC's charitable foundation. And I'll tell you the primary reason why, and then I'll take a deeper dive into your actual question. I get to give away the firm's money. (laughs) <laughs> like I get to give away yeah. the firm's money. We make we make grants. We have three different elements to the charitable foundation that we support. We support education, which I'm extremely passionate about. We also support humanitarian missions and humanitarian issues. So for example, wildfires in California, we would support organizations that are focused in that area. And we also have the People Who Care Fund. And that is to support our PwC professionals as they are experiencing challenges, whether it's a spouse who can't work because of an illness or other types of um, hardships that our PwC people are are going through. But I love the fact that I get to give away the firm's money on areas that are important from a how are we helping others perspective. That's great. Well, now we're going to move on to the part, the last part where we get your industry thoughts on what's happening in the hospitality industry. So PwC recently came out with its 2023 cloud business survey. What were some takeaways in that that might relate to the hospitality industry? So everyone's moving to the cloud, right? I think that's that's a well-known fact pattern. And I think with the the hospitality industry in particular, there's a lot of technical debt. Right. There's a period of time where people weren't necessarily investing in upgrading their tech stack to meet what the needs are of the, the current population. And I think COVID you know, enhanced that, exacerbated it, frankly, as it really had a huge impact on the hospitality industry and, and even more of a delay in making those investments. So what we're seeing right now is you know, there are reservation systems that are 50 years old, right? That are yeah. running on dot matrix type printers, green screens. And you have folks who are digital natives 
you know, my, my kids use their iPhone. That's like yeah. their Bible. That's life for right. them. Right. And so you have folks that are coming into the industry where they're digital natives working on green screens. Right. And so there's a gap there. And part of that movement to the cloud is how do you bring in other PMSs and res systems that are, and CRMs that are more agile and, and adjustable. And that's really what we're seeing in terms of a shift to the cloud, specifically for the hospitality industry, but even wider than that. I love that. And, and do you have any idea like what why the shift takes longer in the hospitality industry? I know, David, we've talked about this before, but the hospitality industry moves slower than most industries. Do you have any insight on why we take a little bit longer? I would say the primary reason is the ecosystem and the number of stakeholders that exist in that ecosystem. You have the brands, you have the owners, you have the third-party investors, you have the employees, you have the communities in which you operate in. There are so many stakeholders within that cycle. And particularly if I think about the dynamic between the owners and the operators or the brands, right? In order to get the owners to invest, they need to see an ROI. And so you have to be able to justify that return on investment. And I think there's the dynamic of how do we ensure profitability? If you tell me to invest in this technology, how can you ensure that it will help me gain efficiencies that will ultimately hit my bottom line? So there's just just dichotomy between the ecosystem and how the industry is structured that you don't see in things like the airlines, right? Where the airlines typically own the assets, they have a little bit more control. It's, it's one of the distinct attributes that I think make it complex. Yeah, and I was very well said. I mean, one of the biggest challenges is I, you know, I've got my day job, but I also do some advisory work. And when you start talking to a lot of investors who don't understand hospitality, they just think that Marriott owns, operates, everything's just connected. They thought back in 2003, you made a hotels.com booking and it magically was in the hotels <laughs> property management system. So anyway, so so very well said. So you're also recently part of a study in partnership with NYU Tisch Center for Hospitality on digital transformation in the hospitality industry. So again, tell us some, what were some of the findings there, maybe beyond what we just discussed? Yeah, some of the key themes. So we we were able to speak with and do focus groups with vendors, so tech vendors. We did focus groups with brand management, management companies. We did focus groups with third-party management companies, and we did focus groups with owners. So we tried to capture as much of that ecosystem as we could right in into the study to get all the perspective. And I think everyone agreed that they're behind technologically in the industry. <laughs> I think that was a, a unanimous perspective. One of the interesting elements that I heard that really resonated with me is how does regulation maybe help level that playing field? And whether there's something that should be done on the regulatory side to have a bare minimum standard. You see that in other industries, right, where there's a bare minimum standard so that everyone can rise together versus the sort of disparity that you see between different brands and, and ownership groups on, on technology. The other piece was, of course, you can't have a conversation today without talking about AI and, and chat GPT. So we talked quite a bit about different use cases in, in hospitality and where they see AI being useful or where they see also risks in using artificial intelligence. From a PwC standpoint, you know, we think about responsible artificial intelligence, responsible AI, and, and making sure you're putting that lens on it. Those were a couple of the topics that really resonated for me. 
I think it was actually quite interesting that everyone had a similar perspective on the state of technology in the industry. No one had a silver bullet, unfortunately. I wish they did because I'd go out and market the heck out of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, Steve, um, yeah. so again, we're going to ruin some of the later questions, but it's funny when I get asked about how AI is going to affect, you know, hotels or hospitality. I'm like, it's great that this is a buzz and what we're talking about, but there's so many things that we haven't gotten to already. I mean, whether it be you're just mobile key, for example, or hotels <laughs> leveraging text messaging. I mean, we're so far behind that I think it's great to look at the shiny object, which is AI, but it's like, let's clean up our house and get everything else in order before we move on to the, the big one. So anyway, so <laughs> so with that, so maybe coming out of the study or just you personally, what do you think from a tech improvement in hospitality, what do you think about upgrades that are going to help either the employees or the guests? Where do you think areas that you know, hotels should focus? I think that... Look, technology is one thing, but hospitality is about people. It is always going to be human-led, tech-enabled. And that's how we actually, that's our philosophy at PwC. We are human-led, tech-enabled. And I don't think that will change in the hospitality industry. So when I think about technology, how do I use that technology to enable my people to provide a higher grade quality of service and enhance the customer or guest experience? So I think technology is an enabler. It's not a replacement for the human element. And it's, you know, what types of technology can we provide, especially in a, in a workforce that covers four generations, to enable the enhancement of the guest experience while maintaining that people and human-led touch, the human touch to it? How can I free up time for my front desk associate to say, Hi, Janelle. I see it's your anniversary coming up on no, no, you know, next week. Pretend we're in November. I see it's your anniversary coming up next week. You know, would you like a bottle of, of champagne delivered to your room? You're staying with your husband or, oh, you're here on business. Let's move you to a room away from the elevator so you can have a restful night. That sort of customized, personalized service that I think technology can enable by allowing people to have that eyes up, the front desk associate to have their eyes up as opposed to down. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Free up those mundane tasks so they can focus on the guests more than you know what they're working on. I love it. I love it. So, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here. What do you see that stakeholders or forward-thinking hotel companies' expectations are as far as sustainability or sustainability efforts go? When you're asking the question, I was like, "Are you going to say sustainability?" Because I was going <laughs> to answer sustainability. Um, <laughs> So when I think about like board hotels, when I think about sustainability, it's how do you take products out of the system that maybe are less sustainable? So one thing David and Steve, you mentioned was uh, mobile key, right? If you think about the plastic keys and how many of those are used in the hotel industry, right? I have, I probably have a, a collection in my bag. I'm guilty of not returning them in because I've been told that the bar the code on the back has information on you and you don't want to return it, right? Like it's an old wives tale, but it's something that I've been told. So I have a collection of them in my bag. I'm one person traveling for business. I get two keys. I don't need two keys. I'm one person. I can get away with one key. And as you said, mobile key does not always work consistently, unfortunately yet, but there's elements of like, how can we use, uh, I can turn on my phone with my face, right? Biometrics. How can we leverage biometrics to reduce certain types of waste? when I think about plastic keys. So that's just one element. 
And then I think about reusable bottles in rooms. So I've stayed at some hotels that have sustainable practices and I've been impressed with having my own tap in my room to fill my water bottle or to fill a reusable bottle. And it actually encourages me to drink more water, which I think we can all agree. We probably are guilty of not drinking enough water every day. So I, I really welcome and appreciate that. And then I think about how often do we all change our sheets at home? And I don't want anyone to actually answer that question out loud, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure we do not change our sheets at home every day, right. nor do we likely change our towels at home every day. So why should we have this expectation or is it reasonable? And how did the brands and hotels, you know, articulate the story and the, the, the purpose of not having daily changing of sheets or daily changing of towels and really encourage those behaviors from the practice of it's kind of common sense. You don't do it at home. So maybe you shouldn't expect to do it at a hotel either. And it's better for the environment in the long run. Yeah. I can't remember who Steve, but one of our guests was talking also about kind of the newer, not my generation, more Steve's generation where they want, they don't even want people in the room when they travel. So it's a combination of just not the cleanliness, but they're like, we'd want anybody in there. And I think what I'd love to see, and maybe you guys will do it, but the correlation between those changes and the labor issues. So in other words, there's a labor issue. And when you talk to a lot of hoteliers and owners that I talk to, it goes down to the, the housekeeping department is really the, the big, big heavy hitter. But yet a lot of hotels that I'm going to now are moving away from the everyday housekeeping efforts. And I just wonder how that balances out with some of the, the labor issues. Yeah, I, I think there's an element of, you know, we all, it's like, how long does it take you to break a habit? Right. If if a habit has always been you go to a hotel, you have daily housekeeping, and that's just sort of the expectation. How do you sort of reverse engineer that for the guest and really have them appreciate the fact and not make it about the fact that you don't have enough housekeepers, but make it about the fact that this is what you're saving. Maybe it's a reduction on your room rate or extra bonus points if you don't use the house. How can you engender loyalty by once again, helping yourself at the same time and, and solving that issue. There, there could be ways of, spin is not the right word, but of articulating the value proposition to the guest in a way that also helps you offset an issue that you're struggling with in terms of labor. Yeah. So basically something better than just a tent card that says, save the world, the oceans and everything <laughs> that you see in these hotel rooms that you're kind of like, not really, I mean, you want to save anyway. All right. So I'm changing this question because I think we covered a lot of the sustainability. So my question to you is, we've asked many of this, what is your advice to somebody who wants to get into hospitality? Learn about the industry. It's We already talked about the number of stakeholders. It is so complex. And then you think about, it depends on where in the, the hospitality industry you want to get involved. Do you want to be an investor or an owner? Do you want to be an operator or a GM or do you want to be a brand manager? And, or do you want to work on the digital side? Do you want to, there's, the options are endless for how to participate in the hospitality industry. I was actually just at the um, NABHOOD conference, the National Association of Black Hotels, Owners, Operators, and Developers. And I moderated their CEO panel with, with a cross-section of folks from F&B operations to an owner of you know, multiple properties to general counsel of one of the brands to someone who does uh, kind of consulting, so similar, similar space that I'm in. And it was 
you know, the premise of the conference is really, really about bringing more black folks into the industry as owners, operators, developers, because it's a place where you can actually start from the ground and move your way up. It's a place that can be a career and a full destination. And you can start at the bottom and work your way up the ladder in so many different ways. And I think that's what's really attractive about the industry. And so that that would be my advice. Go learn about the different elements where you can participate and know that sort of there's there's no ceiling, right? That the ceiling doesn't exist. There's so many places to play. I love that. I love that. Well, our producer, John, has been listening the whole time. So for the last question, we're going to kick it over to him and uh, let him ask one more question here before we're we're done for the episode. So you mentioned that you have lived in D.C. multiple times. I live just outside of D.C. I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So this is kind of a selfish question. I know there's tons to do in D.C. Like so much, it's like impossible to do everything. But if you had one thing that you wouldn't want to tell anybody else about because you like doing that thing or it's a good place to go or whatever, would you share it with us here? Well, if I shared it with you, then other people (laughs) might do it. (laughs) I would say the one thing that I would do that I wouldn't want anyone to know about is my secret path to get down to the CNO Canal Trail to go for runs along the Potomac River. I have a secret path. I avoid traffic. I avoid people. And it's just like this cathartic mile that I can run without being disturbed before I encounter anyone on the on the trail and get bikes kind of honking at me to get out the way because I'm moving too slowly for them. That's, That's great. I love that. I love great. that. So that, that does it for another episode of The Modern Hotelier. So this is where we give you the chance to plug away, whether it be PWC, yourself, where people can find you, connect you, any organizations that you really want to give a shout out to or let people may, be made aware of, it, the floor is yours. I'll start with PwC. The firm is vast. So anything you could probably think of, we do, whether that's tax, M&A, transaction support, risk and regulatory, cyber, internal audit, ESG, consulting, sort of, we can touch all elements of the hospitality industry. And then if I think about my my personal passion, education, you know, support, support education, support educators, the children are our future. And hopefully, you know, they won't be replaced by robots. That's the goal. So that does it for another episode of The Modern Hotel. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you having us, having you as our guest. It was great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to joining you again another time. That'd be great. Thanks so much. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by the Independent Lodging Congress. This ILC event is unlike any other. Indie Congress is our most popular event. It is a two-and-a-half-day conference covering all things hospitality. Through meaningful and relevant panels, deep-dive breakouts, and of course great food and beverage, you'll connect with visionaries and thought leaders inside and outside the independent lodging sector. See you in San Fran. You made it to the end of The Modern Hotelier. Thanks for listening. The Modern Hotelier is produced by Make More Media. Make sure to like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube or follow wherever you get your podcasts. If you know of a guest or sponsor that would be a good fit, feel free to email us at hello at themodernhotelier.com. Thanks and have a great day.